This is a podcast about Vancouver, our community, our culture, our quirks, and all the colors that combine to make our city of glass. My name's Mo Amir, and I'll be your host. This is Van Color. Sherlock Knives is it, so I'll hurry up on it. This is Van Color. If you haven't been paying attention to the developments of this year's upcoming municipal election in the city of Vancouver, you can be forgiven, but only on the account that, hey, it's summertime. However, as we inch closer towards the fall, I implore all of you to start taking an interest in what's becoming a wild, unpredictable, and important election on October 20th. In January, current Vancouver Mayor Gregor Robertson announced that he would not be seeking re-election this year opening the floodgates for a political battle royale in the city's mayoral race with fresh and familiar political personalities who will seek to galvanize and cajole voters in an election that hasn't topped 50% voter turnout since 1990. As of recording, eight mayoral candidates have their eyes on 12th and Canby in what's shaping up to be a dramatic campaign. This upcoming election is characterized by the fire of a frustrated electorate, the drama of party infighting and ideological splitting, the implementation of new election finance rules from the B.C. provincial government, and of course, the deepening housing crisis, which will undoubtedly be the real battleground of ideas in this election. Today on This is Van Color, I'm joined by the most high-profile candidate in this election to talk about the issues and the campaign. He has a master's degree in urban politics and policy from Simon Fraser University and a Ph.D. in world cities from the esteemed London School of Economics. He's worked for the City of Vancouver and Park Board, sat as a tenured professor at SFU's School of Public Policy, where he wrote, taught, and provided advice to governments and the United Nations, and he was elected, twice, as a member of parliament for the NDP, where two themes dominated his federal parliamentary work, stopping the Kinder Morgan pipeline and pushing for affordable housing. In May, he announced his resignation as MP to run for the opportunity to become your next mayor of Vancouver. He's also won three West Coast Music Awards as the basis for the pop music band State of Mind, Dr. Kennedy Stewart. How are you, Dr. Stewart? Hi, great to be here today. Thanks for having me. Thanks for being here. No, I appreciate it. Um, You know, out of all the candidates, you intrigue me the most because you left your job in Ottawa, a job that I'm told has a lot of nice perks, (laughs) uh, to run in this mayoral election. And I can only speculate that sitting in Parliament in Ottawa is the top of the mountain For a lot of Canadians with political aspirations, perhaps even some of the people running in this election for mayor or for uh, city council. So what compelled you to resign from your post as MP to run in this election? And why do you want to become the mayor of Vancouver? Yeah, that's a great question. And it almost reversed those in the sense that (laughs) I was compelled to run for mayor and then I resigned. So I really think that, uh, you know, I really love Vancouver. It's Mm -hmm. everything happened for me here. Moving from Nova Scotia with really a hundred bucks that my grandmother gave me back in the eighties, uh, as a kind of wanna wannabe musician and <laughs> never having lived in a city, uh, and then coming here and just everything that happened to me, you know, uh, as you mentioned the career highlights, but also I met my wife, uh, you know, Jeanette Ash, who's at, at Douglas College, the chair mm-hmm. there in political science, and I mean everything happened for me in this city and. What, you know, I have been representing Burnaby, but also the region. Uh, I've been the BC caucus chair uh, for the NDP. And Mm -hmm. uh, what I noticed was there's, 
everybody's struggling here. The, the city's very stressed out, uh, Vancouver and the region, everybody's stressed. And I thought, well, what can I do to help? Uh, and so that really was, started me thinking a lot about this. Plus I love cities. I mean, that's what I've written about sure. for forever and taught about and consulted on. And I thought, well, this is a, a good fit for me. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so that's what prompted the switch. Uh, I did, uh, and and I had a number of calls from people who said, look, the, with Gregor Robertson stepping down, there is, uh, there is kind of, some people are kicking around the can about running. Uh, mm-hmm. So, but why don't you? Quite jump a few in? people, apparently. <laughs> that's, there were, and I think that's what happens when you have a long-term incumbent mayor uh, step down. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that's what prompted the move. And then, of course, you had to say, "Well, I've had a seven-year career as an MP, and there's a lot of uh, things that you've been involved in." And, uh, Absolutely, you know, I've got something like a thousand cases in my office still that I've, uh, you know, that that uh, have to be wound down. And and but. Uh, but it's been awesome. I've had so much fun doing it, and uh, and I love getting back into the city game. Uh, cool. And uh, that's really what prompted it was like my city's in trouble, and I got to do what I can to help. Sure. And you know, from a political junkie's perspective, th- you've made it so much more exciting. <laughs> well, thanks. <laughs> thanks. Uh, now you're running as an independent, and this election <clears throat> certainly feels different as party divisions and the creation of new parties has meant that the traditional rivalries between Vision Vancouver, the NPA, and COPE won't necessarily define political lines that are drawn in this campaign. However, the last time that an independent was elected as the mayor of Vancouver was 1966. And not to age you, sir, but that's the year you were born. (laughs) That's right. (laughs) So instead of aligning with a known political brand, why are you running as an independent? Yeah, I mean, I I did look at the landscape, and I uh, I guess I had the advantage of of being a, a somewhat of a latecomer to this. So mm-hmm. so a lot of the ground had been established as to you know. So we had uh, Cope, who I've worked with in the past. Um, <clears throat> I helped organize them uh, with them in 1996. <clears throat> Excuse me, and um, uh, and a new uh, one city had just popped up. Right. I, I know Adrian Carr very well from the Green Party. Uh, so I thought, well, there she's. Uh, you know, she was leading the polls. Uh, mm-hmm. So they're a very strong brand. Of course, Vision folks. I've known uh, Raymond Louie and uh, Heather Deal and a lot of the other councillors for a long time. So mm-hmm. um, there didn't seem to be a natural place to go because of all the, uh, because of all the, I guess, uh, machinations that are happening in in Vancouver. So, sure. so I, I thought uh, independent was was the best route to go, and by doing that, trying to bring everybody together. So from uh, uh, the progressive side of things. So. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, Vision, One City, Cope, uh, any independents that are interested, the Greens, trying to say, well, what can I do over the next six months to pull us all together uh, so that we're united as we go into the October election? Right. And, and I've sort of touched on this idea that, you know, it is a political battle royale for the mayorship, but, you know, it's it's hard to predict what city council is going to look like as well. And, and maybe that, maybe an independent mayor as, as a unifying force or, or leader might be the best solution where who knows how city council is going to shape up as well. That's right. Actually, a, a little later than the 60s, uh, in the 70s uh, and 80s, we had Mike Harcourt, who is our uh, mayor here in Vancouver. Right. And he he initially was with, I think, team. And then he moved over to be an independent mayor. Oh, And okay. he was able to 
it, it is almost the exact same situation that we're in now. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, you know, aspiring to the heights of being, uh, Mike Harcourt is, uh, you know, somebody <laughs> I hold a very high esteem, but sure. I think, well, he uh, has shown a path forward. And I, and I do think, uh, so I guess the thing is, uh, my good friend, Nathan Cullen, who's an uh, ADP MP, a long time, uh, uh, you know, one of our leading MPs in Ottawa, he has this great phrase called furious agreement. Mm-hmm. And, he, you know, he's said this through his leadership debates is that I, I do think a lot of the progressives basically have the same concerns, mm-hmm. a lot of the same uh, policy solutions. And I think that there are, it, it's all just how does this work uh, rather than the base of the policy. Right. So I think once we find areas that we agree upon and then maybe that's the role I can play is mm-hmm. to say, well, you know, on the housing front. One of the things that we all agree on, maybe there's some things we don't, mm-hmm. um, but uh, but uh, that's uh, I've only been in this eight weeks now, but I do <laughs> uh, I do talk to a lot of people trying to find out where we where there's uh, areas for compromise, and and that's been part of my Ottawa career as well, is to mm-hmm. do that work across party lines. Sure, cool. Well, that's that's very exciting. So let's get into some policy and, and talk sure. a little platform as well. Now you might disagree with me. And you're allowed to because you're way smarter than me. <laughs> well, I wouldn't say that. I would not say that. <laughs> but but I think that this is a one-issue election. I mean, there is a tsunami of frustrated, angry, cynical Vancouver voters who are clamoring for real action on housing affordability. And I think there might be a lot of voters who normally don't tune in uh, to municipal elections, but they're going to get up off the couch and they'll be casting ballots in October mm-hmm. based on this issue. And, you know, in terms of the causes, we can talk about the influx of global cash. We can talk about low interest rates. We can talk about this recent dirty money report, which shows that laundered money was helping to fuel uh, the crisis as well. But what I'm thinking is that, you know, certainly the the city has control over things like, uh, sorry, the city uh, doesn't have control over things like immigrant investor programs, foreign ownership rules, banking regulations, and other policy areas that are actually controlled by the federal government or the provincial government. So can you explain to me all the tools that are available at city council's disposal to address housing affordability, and what exactly are your proposed solutions to help fight this sure. crisis. Okay, that's a lot. I, there, there's a lot to talk about there, and uh, we have a lot of time. Yeah, good. I'm <laughs> glad. Uh, you know, and this is the advantage of of uh, you know spending 20 years studying world cities is that mm-hmm. you you kind of see. I, I mean, uh, a lot of my time I spent in London when I did my PhD there, and I kind of call that the the grandparent of cities. Mm-hmm. It, it's been through everything. It's been around for 2,000 years, yep. and you know the Romans kind of kicked it off. And you think so. So living in a city like that, and while I was there, they'd set up a brand new mayoralty. Uh, Ken Livingston came in as the mayor. Uh, it was a Tony Blair government who invested heavily in London. Mm-hmm. And I was uh, while at the LSE. That's a lot of what I studied. So I was able to kind of see bringing in congestion charges and all those kind of things. And um, and what, and uh, I feel so lucky to be uh, to know a lot about London, but also to know a lot about Vancouver. And uh, Vancouver is kind of the teenage city, in the mm. sense that it's uh, it's the beautiful uh, place where uh, you know full of energy and and curiosity. And angst, apparently, well, and that's <laughs> and that's teenage angst, right? Now, sure. so London kind of has you know they survived the Blitz and everything that you can think of that's been thrown at a city. So I, I think that. Uh, Vancouverites have to think, okay, other people have made made it through this. Other cities have have found solutions to these problems and and we can too. Mm-hmm. So so I think what I noticed is everybody is stressed out like you said. I mean mm-hmm. everybody, we've got you know folks that were 
middle class people are all of a sudden overnight millionaires, and that's very new to them. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, that's a good problem to have, but it's still stressful. Uh, we have businesses who can't find employees because they yeah, they can't live, problem. and they're they're stressed out and wor- worried about leaving, especially the global companies like tech firms. Mm-hmm. Uh, we have. Uh, you know, homelessness numbers are increasing, which is a big concern. You know, if anybody's got a heart, that that is uh, a big concern for people. Absolutely. Rents are out of control. And first time, somebody maybe uh, 20 years ago who would be a first-time homeowner uh, now can't access that. So, mm-hmm. like, the entire population is stressed. Um, and so I think the first job is, like, we can get out of this. Like my first job is to say, okay, th- there are things that we can do that that can make it better for everybody. Mm-hmm. Uh, we have to stop running around gnashing our teeth, and we have to sit down and do some, you know, implement some very good policy solutions. And we have to work with all three levels of government. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, all housing markets are based on supply and demand. Um, and you're right, there's a lot. You know, we can't control immigration at all. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, I'm not from Vancouver. I grew up in Nova Scotia. Sure. I moved out here in the 80s. Most people, you know, my wife was born here, mm-hmm. but <laughs> most people weren't. So it is a very attractive city to come to, whether you're a Canadian or a, or coming from the U.S. or somewhere else um, in the world. And so that's that's something, That's a, I think that's a, a gift, you know, the mountains and the Absolutely, sea yeah. and, the, and the excitement of being on the west coast of uh, North America and all the access to Asia. Mm-hmm. But it's it's going to cause pressure because a lot. I think this city will continue to grow uh, for, for centuries. Mm-hmm. And, and maybe if we think in that perspective, that kind of thinks, wow, it's going to look really different here. Right. So... Um, so we can't do much about the demand side. There's mm-hmm. going to be lots of new people moving here. Uh, I do think, uh, you know, I was a bit skeptical about the foreign speculation. Uh, um, at first, um, when I was in Ottawa, I uh, put a motion forward to have a study, StatScan, uh, look at this. And mm-hmm. so we had our very first study. Uh, uh, the, the Liberal government funded it, but it was a push for me to, to do it, was a $500,000 study on who owns Vancouver. Right. And then we st- and we're getting more of that information now. Uh, we see that foreign investment, at least from certain venues, is uh, not quite as high as some people were saying it was, but it's still significant. Um, and so we do have now uh, taxes in place. Uh, that the uh, We have one from the provincial level on, on the, uh, you know, the extra school tax mm-hmm. on uh, mansions that are or places worth over three, uh, $3 million. Mm-hmm. We have the empty homes tax that's been put in by the, uh, by the city. And we're going to have a new speculation tax uh, put in by the provincial government. So, so those are three very strong policy tools. Mm-hmm. And uh, before we, uh, and they're all based on the demand side of things. They're trying to slow down, um, people coming into the market uh, that are uh, perhaps uh, not from here, or when they come in and buy, they're not speculating, they're living in their homes or renting them out. So right. so with three new tools coming in, my, my professor of policy hat says, uh, let's not do four, five, and six yet until we know how these ones are working. Okay. And I think that, uh, and that we could do that pretty quickly. I think probably no one, uh, probably six to eight months after the uh, the new measure is put in place. Mm-hmm. Uh, the, but the side we can work on is supply. Um, and so I think there's two different approaches to supply and they're, and they, uh, they can overlap. Um, so the first is basically market, you know, uh, people say if you upzone areas, if you have single family home, uh, places that are zoned, uh, which is a city power, mm-hmm. uh, single family home, all you do is change it. So you can have multiple dwellings on that. And all of a sudden there'll be a lot of building. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I think, uh, you know, th- so that would, I would say be the, uh, Hector Bremner kind of, uh, massive upzoning of the entire city uh, right. is kind of his, his, uh, what he's trying to push for, uh, 
And uh, I think a lot of people see that as problematic Mm -hmm. uh, because uh, we have a very good planning department. I I used to work in it. And I think that I think there has to be some planning done in cities. It just cannot be left to the market. And we've seen disasters in other cities where that's been the case. Well, and we've also seen supply creation outstrip population growth as well. So it's not necessarily that the supply that's being created is, is satiating local demand. Right. At least least from what I can see, right? Well, I, so I think right now uh, our supply is basically matching our population increase. It's, and so that's not going to contribute to lower prices. Mm -hmm. Right. And, and, uh, uh, you know, made exceeded by a little bit, but but the one the one area that we really need to talk about is the uh, non market housing, sure. And that is that has been severely curtailed by the federal government uh, pulling out of these programs in the early nineties. Mm-hmm. Uh, we had some legacy stock, you know, the co ops are probably the best example of that. There was some uh, rental housing that was built under different federal programs mm-hmm. that all stopped in the nineties, and as these buildings get older, they disappear, right. and they're replaced by. Uh, the the uh, private sector housing, so we have to get back into housing in a big way. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's uh, that started to some extent, but um, but we have to do more investment in uh, in uh, not for profit housing. Uh, and there's a different there's a whole bunch of different vehicles, but really in the end, it's uh, it's for the workforce. Mm-hmm. I think that where we have a lot of overlap and agreement between landlords and and uh, and renters and we and between employers and employees and unions would be all around well every neighborhood has to have a supply of folks who do work sure <laughs> you know and and not everybody's going to be earning $500,000 a year right we've got to yeah. have a we got to have a mix of housing for all income groups and if we don't what we'll get is really bad local inflation. Mm-hmm. I mean, these, this is all kind of boring policy stuff in a way, but but it is super important because Absolutely, you can yeah. destroy your city. If you don't uh, if you don't act on this, you can destroy your city, as other cities have found. So so I do think uh, the city has taken some measures to uh, to invest in uh, in non market housing, uh, but mm-hmm. it's still not. I saw a new co op, for example, was opened uh, in South Vancouver, okay. uh, Fraserview. And uh, they said a two-bedroom apartment would rent for twenty uh, twenty-two hundred bucks a month, and a three-bedroom is twenty-seven hundred. Yeah, and they're calling that affordable. <laughs> and I think so. That's not the right solution. No, like, th- and I think it it shows you just how big the problem is. Absolutely. Yeah. And and just how we're going to have to be a little bit more. I I don't like to use the word radical, mm-hmm. but but I do think we're going to have to get out of our comfortable zone and we're going to have to invest more. Sure. And and we've got some great examples. So in some European cities, um, what they do is they invest in middle income housing, mm-hmm. it rental. Uh, you know, it's an asset on your books, so it doesn't cost too much. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, or you keep it on, you know, it doesn't drive you into it stays as an asset on your book, so it helps you balance your books. Okay. But you, uh, you charge below market rent, but then you're still making profit. Uh, the city would be making profits. Yeah, so you're still th- collecting rents. That's right. Yeah. And so then you put that into the uh, basically the, the kind of housing that loses you money, mm-hmm. which is the social housing. Right. And uh, some places have been so successful that they've actually had to tax some of the money back. Um, oh, wow. Yeah. Okay. And so the city is a big landholder. The feds have land here. Province has a little tiny bit. Mm-hmm. So I think we can uh, be more aggressive on that side, and that would be okay. the main part of my, my plan. And, and you sort of touched on the, the next thing that I wanted to talk to you about, about this <laughs> idea of non-market housing and Vancouver being, as you described, a teenage city. Yeah. Um, how far behind or, or how much more, how much further do we have to go uh, to have 
a city with non-market housing that's sort of up to par of other cities that you've, that you've studied or, or seen yourself? Right. So uh, to give you an example, um, so in Canada, uh, 95% of the, the housing stock in Canada is privately owned, mm-hmm. uh, which, and in some places it's a little more, in some places they're a little less, but it's a good number. So let's just say, you know, around 5% of, of the housing in Vancouver is, uh, it could be up to 10, but around there, less than 90, 90% of the housing here is market value, uh, mm-hmm. market in the market. Uh, in a place like uh, Singapore, it's 75% uh, is non-market. Really? Yeah. Oh, wow. Hong okay. Kong, it's about half. It's mm. about 50%. Uh, so so um, these they realize that they have the same geographic kind of uh, problems that we do. Is is not a lot of a- areas to grow. Mm-hmm. And so they've had to get in and to make sure that local people can buy mm-hmm. uh, to, a- to start building equity uh, through various schemes. Mm-hmm. Uh, and they have to really tightly regulate the the market and you just can't you can't leave it open so mm-hmm. i'm not suggesting we go uh overnight to to where singapore and hong kong sure are. yeah i don't but, think that's realistic anyways no but but i do think that is the key indicator to me is mm-hmm. that uh, and and it can't be all concentrated in one area it has to be all around the city right because you need uh you need folks to work in restaurants and hospitals and fire departments all around the city in different mm-hmm. neighborhoods uh and so it has to be spread, and that's what London did for a very long time with mm-hmm. council housing. So I, I lived all around the city of London. Every part of the city had a, a mix of housing, so okay. you could have, uh, you know, you know, lower, middle, and, and higher income folks all living in the same neighborhoods, which which we've gotten away from here. Mm-hmm. Okay, interesting. Um, moving away from housing, one of your other priorities is to end the big money influence in the city of Vancouver. And from what I can gather so far, no one else is talking about this as much as you. So why is this important to you and why should it be important to voters? Yeah, I mean, uh, cities uh, are a big part of what I've studied and written about. But the other thing is very core to me is is a democracy. Mm-hmm. Uh, so uh, in the last parliament, for example, uh, I was able to pass a bill, uh, uh, a new measure through parliament. Uh, Stephen Harper was a tough opponent, but I managed to uh, split eight of his backbenchers away from him in a oh, vote wow. okay. and work with the Liberals, the Greens, and the Bloc. And I passed a vote in Parliament 142-140, super close. Mm. And it was the only vote that Harper lost through the whole four years. Wow. Okay. And it was to, for a democratic reform measure, which is to bring electronic petitioning to Canada. So mm. now you can do official electronic petitions. It doesn't sound like a huge thing, but in that environment of, uh, you know, the conservative Harper government, it was quite a big thing. And to split his usually rock solid uh, caucus and to to win uh, you know to to win over eight uh, of his backbenchers to was was a pretty big deal uh, mm-hmm. enough for him to swear in the house of comments <laughs> oh, was that right yeah, okay yeah. <laughs> i don't know if you can catch that on tape but he was pretty <laughs> upset so um so so democracy is a huge thing for me and uh, back in i think 1998 i wrote a report for the provincial government with a colleague of mine uh, patrick smith from okay. uh, sfu oh yeah I've, I've had him as a patty smith yeah, yeah patty I, smith. I had him as a teacher econ it was a 100 level class but oh, i can't remember what it was administration of justice or something like that yeah maybe yeah uh, yeah. yeah yeah so we uh, he was my master super Supervisor. So we've oh, been working so cool. forever together. Yeah. And so we wrote a report for the provincial government in 1998 about getting basically big money out of politics. Uh, then we wrote another report for uh, the liberal provincial government. It was the NDP in, in uh, 98 
Then we wrote another one for the the provincial liberals about getting big money out, telling how much trouble it is that you can't have millions of dollars flowing through campaigns, mm-hmm. uh, and then not expect it to have an impact on policy. And then uh, Patty wrote another report for the uh, last provincial government, uh, who finally did bring in. Um, uh, so the Liberals brought in disclosure so we could kind of see where the money was going through the whole province. And mm-hmm. then the NDP has just brought in hard caps, yes, which is a huge step forward and it's massively changed this election. Mm-hmm. So instead of a developer or a union being able to walk in and give uh, two $300,000 checks, you've got to raise small amounts of money from a large number of people. Yeah, yeah. and that is a huge difference. However... Um, Operating at the federal level, we have some pretty – we have stricter uh, uh, measures. So one's on uh, lobbying. Okay. Uh, so we don't have a lobbyist registry at um, at the city of Vancouver, and there should be one there. Yeah. Uh, it should, we'll get should, into that in a second. Okay, sure. Yeah, uh, but the, about that. the other side is, is related. It's on conflict of interest is that mm-hmm. as a federal member of parliament, I have to disclose all my assets, uh, but so does my wife. Oh, okay. Right, and that's all public, so you can go on the website and see it. Yeah. And so that, you know, there are ways to influence politicians, and and so now we have the caps in. Uh, John Horgan brought that in, which is great. Yeah. But I do still think that there are are measures that have to be taken. Uh, The one thing. So you you think that the rules are the the rules that have been brought in by the BCNDP are still insufficient for. There municipalities. Are, yeah, I still think there has to be. So, for example, at the federal level, I have to go through an auditor. So whenever oh. I, uh, so actually, there was a story in CBC yesterday where I was the top, <laughs> the top fundraising NDP MP, mm-hmm. and I have more donors than any uh, constituency association of any party. Wow. Uh, so it's kind of the Bernie Sanders. You know, I have twelve hundred people uh, that would donate an average of fifty dollars rather than have. You know, a smaller number of people donate the maximum of 1,500. I I always think you should have a lot of small donors, Mm -hmm. and then everybody's kind of equal. So I do think that uh, the provincial government still has to tighten some things up there. Uh, But what I've done in this election is I've proactively disclosed my donors. So people are going to know who donates to my campaign before they vote. Oh, wow. So that is on my website, and I'll be doing my next... I did my first round of disclosure three weeks ago, and I'll be doing my next one um, within the next few days. Mm -hmm. So not only you see how much money I raise, you see... And this is all voluntary. It is. Okay, yeah. 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 So So uh, really putting your your money where your mouth is. Yeah, I (laughs) I really think that, uh, you know, democracy is really important to me, and and I do think that we have to do more to to rebuild confidence in it. I I did notice from going from a prof to a uh, politician, you're as a prof, you know, people kind of want your opinion and like you, but as soon as you go to a politician, you're kind of a scumbag. So I thought, well, <laughs> you know, the day didn't change me very much, but but we have to rebuild that perception, and a lot of it's on transparency and accountability. Yeah, I think so. And and I think these kind of things go a long way. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, and so that that's, uh, you know, I do think there was a lot of big money. Uh, the province has done a lot to take that out, but there's still more to do. Sure. Fair enough. Um to, to go back to this idea of a lobbyist registry, I, mm-hmm. I was quite shocked to learn that there is no lobbyist registry for the city of Vancouver. And when I did a little research on this, I saw that NPA city councillor George Affleck, he pushed for this in 2015. And then he envisioned Vancouver city councillor Andrea Reimer worked on a motion for a lobbyist registry in February 2017. And it actually passed in city council. And as I was researching, I couldn't figure out what happened after that. Mm-hmm. So... So what happened and why isn't there 
a lobbyist registry in place right now? Yeah, there are two ways it can be put in place. One way is for the provincial government to, to either empower the city to do it or to do it themselves mm-hmm. uh, through the either the altering the Vancouver Charter or uh, the Local Government Act. Um, the second way is that the city could, could do it themselves. They mm-hmm. could basically say, we won't meet with anybody unless you disclose. Right. And so it would be voluntary disclosure. And uh, so, I mean, that's what I'm doing in this campaign is I'm voluntarily disclosing my, uh, you know, proactively disclosing my donors. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think, th- so I, I think that the motions were, were a good attempt, but I do think there could have been a bit more effort made. Mm-hmm. Um, and you don't want to say that sometimes this is done to, to make it look like you're doing something. Uh, but I'm but I think sure. you're setting an, an example you of have what to this do should it. look like. And, and I mean, especially when there's so much stress and anxiety around, uh, you know, speculators controlling City Hall and mm-hmm. getting whatever they, you know, and, and you hear this from small uh, home, from homeowners too. They say it takes me eight months to get something, you know, I want to add a, a shed in my backyard. It takes me the year and a half to get yeah. that approved, but then somebody can add 20 stories on their building, uh, you know, overnight. Mm-hmm. I, I do think that there, that whether it's true or not, the perception is there. Sure. And I think the more you can be transparent and I, I uh, you know, uh, as an MP over seven years, for example, I never took a sponsored trip anywhere. Mm-hmm. I, I do think all that stuff really undermines uh, how people look at politicians yeah. and, and, it, it is going to be a long road, but but I do think we have to rebuild our reputations, and the, and the way to do that is through, uh, you know, decisions are always going to be unpopular, mm-hmm. but at least if people think uh, you're on the up and up, and um, and they can see that, and uh, uh, that'll help with reputation, and then and then you know it's about rebuilding trust. Sure. Yeah. Um, moving a little away from the 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 lobbyist registry and and more talking about lobbyists themselves. Mm-hmm. Currently, there's no rule that prohibits any former city staffer or politician from going to work or lobbying immediately for someone doing business with the city. Um, In fact, former COPE city councillor Jim Green did just that in 2005. Mm -hmm. As of recording, current city councillor and mayoral candidate for the Yes Vancouver Party, Hector Bremer, sits as the vice president of public affairs for Pace Group Communications, which is a lobbying firm. It's been categorized in the media as such, though they are wise to have expunged the word lobby from their website. As per the rules and, and the reforms that, that you seek to implement, would he, would he have had to resign from his position once he was elected city councillor in the October 2017 by-election? Uh, well, uh, where I've looked to these rules is Montreal, mm-hmm. which is they have the toughest, they have the toughest all-around laws on everything. Uh, for example, you can't donate more than 100 bucks in elections. There. Really? Oh, oh yeah. Wow. And okay. their conflict of interest rules are very, very tight. So mm. basically, you cannot work in the industry uh, where uh, you're making decisions because there's never any way to recuse yourself from uh, personal advantage. Yeah. And so like, I look at myself like uh, I'm not in the development industry. I, I have, uh, you know, done housing policy and stuff. So mm-hmm. I would not be able to do that anymore if I was sitting as a councillor or mayor. Uh, but I've made a decision about I, I couldn't stay as an MP and be mayor. Mm-hmm. So I have to resign my position as, as MP. Mm-hmm. And I think you have to make a choice. Uh, part of the difficulty, uh, you know, Vancouver councillors are... Uh, their compensation is okay. I mean, a counselor makes, I think, around eighty-five thousand uh, dollars. So it's pretty I, good. I, it's pretty good. <laughs> it's pretty good. But but um, but I think that's part of why. I mean, it it really has been forever viewed as a, been viewed as a part-time job. Sure. Yeah, that's fair. And, and I and I do think that um, you know perhaps that's something that 
we should reevaluate in mm-hmm. terms of why do people feel like they have to work at the same time as making uh, doing a lot of work on city and overseeing a 1.4 billion dollar budget like uh, the mayor's compensation is fine mm-hmm. um but i but i do think that uh, you can't be uh you, you can't work <laughs> in the real estate sector and be mayor. Like, I, I just don't think that. Yeah, and be passing rules that affect the real estate. That's sector, right. And, right. And if it's not you directly, and that's why the spousal, uh, also the, the spousal disclosures are so important as well, mm-hmm. because it can't benefit you or your family, right. direct family. And uh, I think that, um, again, there be no, may be no problems ever that has happened there, but mm-hmm. I think the perception from the public is just as important. And if they know that the mayor and counselors are not having anything to do with it personally with the decisions that are being made at council, yeah. then that will go a long way to rebuild the trust that I think is uh, lacking in the city. And and to his credit, you know, Hector has re- recused himself, I think, even last night. We are, we're going to be putting this up uh, a week ahead of time, right. but uh, even last night he recused himself for, for a reason. So I'm not, I'm not making any accusation. I'm just saying that it, it, from a perception, it does look pretty bad if you have someone who is in the lobbying industry, but sitting Mm-hmm. And push and making policy while also receiving a paycheck right. to to promote certain policy. And so at the federal level, we have very strict conflict of interest rules. Mm-hmm. Uh, we have to disclose everything to the conflict of interest commissioner. If we have, uh, if we have, if we think we're in conflict, we can go to them and ask for help. And they have this at the provincial level too. But the other thing is they have investigatory powers. Mm-hmm. So if there's a complaint, and we've had this against the finance minister a couple of times federally mm-hmm. this year, and a couple of times he was found guilty, uh, was. Um, that if there's a complaint that uh, because all this stuff is voluntary at this point, right? right? All your disclosure forms are voluntary. There's no audits. There's no office to oversee it. Uh, mm-hmm. And um, the clerk's office, you know, that does a lot of this administration, uh, very great people who work there. But all of a sudden you're evaluating your boss, mm-hmm. which is is a problem. Right. And especially, you know, small municipalities. Maybe that's fine, but when you're when you're in a world city like Vancouver, I think we have to have world city standards, mm-hmm. and uh, and we don't. So so I work very hard to and and you know in the end maybe nothing ever comes of it. You know, and mm-hmm. we get these new rules, everybody's uh, you know acting the way they should, and, and but it does give the the public confidence that that council's on their side. Mm-hmm. Absolutely, and and from my understanding, like it, it's interesting that you are pushing these two things together: the lobbyist registry and conflict of interest rules. Because as you said, sitting on council is like a second job. And okay, maybe you're not taking a political donation, but someone is helping your your work or, or business for for influence. And mm-hmm. every time, you know, I I really like the new election finance rules and I, and I brought it up with a few friends and they said, well, you know, for city council, they just, they get you another way. And it, it's almost like this tension between, okay, if anyone can donate to, to any party, at least you have a transparent system, you, you have the money trail with the current system with, with the BCNDP that, that they've put on, it's great, but you don't even see where the money's coming from and how it's filtering through perhaps other groups that are promoting a candidate. Um, so it is quite a challenge, I think. Right? It is. And I, and I think, again, in small municipalities or early days of Vancouver, like that's kind of how things work, but it, you can't get there now. Like you, you mm-hmm. really have to. And, and that's the advantage of being at the federal level for seven years is, right. you know, the conflict of interest commissioner would say to us, you shouldn't even take a coffee cup. Right. You'd like if anybody, like I've had it happen before where, uh, you know, I've had a cup of coffee with somebody that I knew. And at the end of the conversation, they say, oh, by the way, I'm here in Ottawa 
talking about this project and I immediately have to say, oh, <laughs> like I, you know, I have to pay for my own coffee. I, yeah. You know, I'm, I can talk to you, but mm-hmm. you have to, and it's up to the, the lobbyist to register. Yeah. It's not up for me to report it. I just have to warn them, like, you guys have to do this or you're going to get in trouble. Right. Uh, okay. And a lot of new people to politics don't understand that. They think, oh, you know, we just go pull the mayor aside and say, can you add an extra 10 stories to this building? It's like, <laughs> that, I mean, that ha- that can happen now. Yeah. But but under, we need the rules so that doesn't happen. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, the other thing, I when I, when I was uh, in Ottawa, I was, uh, for about a year, I was the kind of uh, uh, shadow minister for pipelines. Right. So, um, so I met with oil and gas lobbyists all the time. I mean, that was part of my job was to, to meet with the, that sector. And uh, what I loved is, is they couldn't give me anything. They couldn't, they, they couldn't donate to my campaigns. They couldn't uh, offer me trips. Mm-hmm. Uh, and what was great was after their 15 minutes were up, then I could meet my constituent that was having an actual trouble that I could help them with. Mm-hmm. And so it really is a great leveler. Mm-hmm. Um, and so what, and well, you know, that we're, I would say we're kind of halfway there at the city level and we've yeah. got about another half to go. And then it, it gives the public a lot of confidence. So when sure. they can go online and see all my assets, all my trips, all my budgets, like everything that I've spent through my office is all online and yeah. they can all go see it and they say, oh, okay. So everything, and it, it takes away that appearance of conflict too. Mm-hmm. So I really think we need that in Vancouver. Yeah, fair enough. Especially considering what's been in the news lately. And as you said, you know, Vancouver as a teenage city, we have a lot of angst. And I think that includes a lot of cynicism for our democratic institutions, rightly or wrongly. So steps like this and and you setting an example, I think, are great. I mean, the public I, I don't really, know who wouldn't be on board with something like that. My, You know, my belief is that the public is very smart. Mm-hmm. I mean, I know lots of people that don't share that view, but I certainly do. Mm-hmm. And I just think they're, they don't have the information they need. Yeah. Uh, and I think once you give the public the information, they always make the right choice. Absolutely. And, uh, and I think we need to get better information to the public. Mm-hmm. Cool. Well, let's talk about another one of your priorities. Uh, one that you've worked on throughout your uh, your time as an MP as well. Let's talk about Kinder Morgan. Right. Okay. You've been vehemently fighting the Kinder Morgan pipeline extension as an MP in Ottawa, going so far as to engage in civil disobedience protests where you were arrested and charged with criminal contempt of court, a charge that you pled guilty to in May. Mm-hmm. This is all public information. Oh, yeah, yeah. With the nationalization of the existing pipeline at a cost of $4.5 billion, when the same pipeline was bought by Kinder Morgan for $550 million in 2007, even and it's just gotten older, it's nothing yeah. has been done to it, and the Trudeau government saying that they're going to move forward on the expansion in a few weeks, is there still hope for the resistance to stop this project? And specifically, you said that you're going to continue your opposition to this pipeline as the mayor of Vancouver. So what can you do from the mayor's office more effectively than from the MP's office. Yeah, I think that's good. I mean, this has been a, a seven-year odyssey for me. Uh, <laughs> I was elected May 2nd, uh, 2011, and on May 3rd, uh, somehow uh, Kinder Morgan got my home number and called me and asked me for a, for a meeting. Really? Uh, so I met wow. with uh, Ian Anderson, the president, four times very early in my tenure, and the first time he showed me the plan they had, and I thought, uh, I don't know if my constituents are going to like this, but I gave it a fair shake. I, I learned a lot about it, but by the fourth meeting, I was, no, this is, and I and I told the I told the company, I said, you know, not only are you not going to get your new pipeline built, the old one is leaky, and you're going to, yeah. and it leaks way more than people know, mm-hmm. uh, so you're probably going to have to clean that up. So Well, I, and they had that leak just recently, and they said it was... Uh, 
however many liters, but it was 40 t- 48 times more than it right. was. And yeah, and <laughs> so I mean, the, the, you know, the, the basics of it are that the the current the, the pipeline that's there now uh, that carries about three hundred thousand barrels a day of oil, gas, diesel uh, from Alberta to BC, we need it. Mm-hmm. I mean, it, it, if anybody drives around the city, uh, yeah, you take a bus yeah. or you fly. In a plane. That's right. And so I've I've always just said, well, that pipeline is, we use fuel, so we, we keep the current pipeline, but it's a mess. It was built in 1953 mm-hmm. and it's never been replaced. And that's, a, and it's, um, and they've incre- uh, increased the capacity of it as well as uh, they're running bitumen down it, which is way more corrosive to the... Mm. And I actually, uh, a relative of mine uh, worked for Kinder Morgan for a long time, uh, left because the standards were so low on their maintenance. Uh, mm. And, uh, you know, so I have lots of folks that worked in that industry directly. Um, so, I mean, uh, what it is went to my community in Burnaby and I phoned every household and I said, here's the project, what do you think? Um, 5,000 people voted and, and uh, 75% of them said, we don't want this. So I mm-hmm. said, okay, so I'm locked in. And then basically from 2012 until, re- you know, still, um, I've made a hundred speeches in parliament against this, mm-hmm. uh, you know, and tried to organize my community too, but not just my community ended up being kind of British Columbia. Yeah. Uh, so working very closely with, uh, Slabletooth First Nation, with, uh, Grand Chief Stuart Phillip of the UBCIC, visiting reserves along the way. Uh, when they built this pipeline in the fifties, they put it through 15 reserves. And at that point, of course, First Nations could not vote and they couldn't hire right. lawyers and couldn't yeah. hire lawyers. So, huh. so it was the easiest route for them. Yeah. Uh, and now, uh, this is a huge problem for Trudeau, is that um, is that he's bought this asset, uh, and a lot of it is built through communities in an illegal way. Like, is that the pipeline is too close to structures? It mm-hmm. goes through places it shouldn't. And so, I think there's so much repair to do to this. Uh, the current pipeline that it's just going to be a, a giant black hole for for the government. Yeah, uh, my they are kind of putting a brave face, saying, "Oh, you know, construction's going to start in uh, in a few weeks." But the only permissions they actually have to build are in Burnaby. So, oh, okay, uh, and that's only uh, so expanding the pipeline and expanding the Westridge docks where the tankers would come in. That's mm-hmm. the only place they can build right now. Wow. Okay. So they still haven't received the permits from the National Energy Board. They still haven't received the necessary permits from the province. Right. Uh, there still are all kinds of outstanding court cases. Mm-hmm. So, um, you know, they are putting a brave face on it. But my feeling is um, this thing is still not going to get built. Okay. And I think it'll just be a pipeline that, you know, perhaps Alberta has equity in it, perhaps the federal government does. I think what really buying so so people were in BC were kind of split. There's so much advertising on the pro side, it's yeah. hot, tough on that on the opposition side. And I think that's why you get protest because people feel they're not being heard. Mm-hmm. Um but uh, what happened was I think public, public opinion started to turn much more against the pipeline when the government bought it. I agree, yeah. <laughs> but when they said they're going to use pension funds, it's, it's, I did, we did a poll recently in Vancouver and 70% of folks were against it now. Wow. And, I, and I do think it is a big problem for the, for the uh, federal liberals since there's an election next year. Mm-hmm. And, and the British Columbians, uh, at least where they hold seats, are quite upset. Mm-hmm. For me, this uh, brings a great opportunity, though is that uh, as mayor of Vancouver, uh, I'm not going to stop my opposition to the pipeline, but I do think that the federal government is going to have to do a lot of things to win back favor in Vancouver. And I'm mm. hoping that housing investment will be a big part of that. Okay. Interesting. So, yeah, yeah. So I, I do think, I mean, that's been the advantage of being, a, <laughs> you know, sitting in parliament for, for seven years Absolutely. is that you kind of know how that place works. Yeah. And 
there'll be a huge panic before the next federal election. And I do think uh, if we're uh, if we're on the ball at city council, that we can actually get a lot of things for, for Vancouver. Number one priority would be housing. Cool. Okay. Cool. Um, let's move away from the the policy side a little bit, and let's talk politics. Let's talk okay. about the campaign. Sure. It's only summer, but uh, we've seen some crazy rhetoric already in this election, particularly from elements of what's become the Yes Vancouver Party splitting from the NPA. Right. Um, given how, how, how many mayoral candidates there are, should voters brace for an election that's just full of mudslinging and, and negative campaigning in the fall? Because it is a, a bit of a political battle royale. And if you can garner 20% of the popular vote, you're in, a, you're in pretty good standing to, mm-hmm. to have a shot at this thing. Yeah. So is this going to be, is this going to get dirty? Well, um, you know, my first election was in 2004. Uh, you know, that was Jack Layton's first election as leader and, mm-hmm. and my first uh, my first time around as a candidate. And I ran in Vancouver Centre against uh, Hetty Fry, who was a very, uh, you know, venerable uh, liberal uh, survivor of many regimes. Sure. And I know I was getting some advice from folks early on that I should... Uh, you know, you should try political, you know, personal attacks. Mm-hmm. And I, I debated Hetty, I think, 22 times. And I, it just never felt right to do that. Sure. So, I, so I'd always just focus on policy. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and that was kind of it. Mm-hmm. So, uh, so that's what I've done all the way through my career. I, I don't really, occasionally in the House of Commons, y- you might get a little upset. But, <laughs> but, um, but other than that, uh, I How think many swear words have you used in the House of Commons? Oh, zero. Zero? Yeah. So yeah. Harper has one on you. He has one on me, and it's never got on the record. Okay. So, so, <laughs> but I thought I'd tell people because it was a funny night. But, um, but, but I think that's it, is to focus on policy. And I do think when you get to personal attacks, you're losing. So that's, that's what happens is people start to lose, and they get desperate, and that's where they go. Yeah. Um, and uh, it's also... Um, you know uh, the parties in in Vancouver, uh, in this and in some sense are well uh, less structured than federal and provincial parties. Mm. So, for example, uh, they they, they really you don't really have the advice. The, a lot of times you don't have the professional advice that you would get at the federal and provincial level. Right. So you make these early mistakes, and then that's that's really a reflection on you. Yeah. So I do think there will be. I mean, Twitter is kind of a nasty place these days oh, yeah. for everything. <laughs> it's pretty brutal. <laughs> but uh, you just have to not worry about that. And and actually, the biggest challenge for me is if I get attacked by somebody, mm-hmm. is to try to pull them over to my side. Yeah. And you do that. And I found that, again, through my career is that people are really upset, but sometimes you know, they're, they're kind of saying, well, listen to me. And you say, okay, I'm listening now. Mm-hmm. And then they kind of calm down and they say what they're really concerned about. And you say, oh, I can actually help you with that. Mm. And then all of a sudden... They're, that's all they wanted. Yeah. So, uh, you know, some people are trolls and they're, and they're set up to do this stuff and they don't really want any solutions. They just want to, they've got some ax to grind, but, but most folks are, are very reasonable. And, um, I think my job is to try to win them over. Sure. Fair enough. Um, we mentioned at the start of the podcast that voter turnout in, in the Vancouver municipal election hasn't cracked 50% since 1990. Do you expect this election to be different and how do you intend to use your high profile to combat both cynicism in democratic institutions and just overall complacency for municipal politics, which I think tend to be the reason why a lot of people would stay home on election night? Yeah, I mean, uh, Vancouver, uh, sorry, all, all city politics, basically you get low turnouts yeah. and, uh, y- you know, turnout's been dropping for decades in Canada and, and civic elections are the ones that are uh, 
you know, really usually the lowest, although mm-hmm. in, in, uh, sometimes they're even higher than provincial elections. But, but the interesting thing about the people who vote is that they know a lot. Mm-hmm. So uh, in 2005, I think I ran the first uh, exit poll uh, done in Canada on the Vancouver Civic Election, or 2008. And I, I did these little tests uh, where, I, where I tested people's knowledge of what was happening uh, in this exit poll, and it, they were off the charts. So, so what you hmm. do get is, sure, you don't get the whole city voting, uh, that's for sure. You might you'd be lucky to get half of the uh, registered voters or eligible voters to vote, but the people who do vote know a lot. Mm-hmm. And so that, so, so I think, you know, your podcast and other podcasts and folks out there providing information, uh, they'll get listened to because it's people's homes mm-hmm. and this is the closest level of government. So, um, a lot of, you know, and, and you do in the city, you get a lot of movement, right? So people move between municipalities. They, they're just moving to the city. They're, they move a bunch of times within the city. Mm-hmm. Uh, so the movement of people affects a lot about ha- how they pay attention to politics. Absolutely. Um, so I do think that, uh, so, so really I, I expect around 40, 40% turnout probably in this, okay. in this uh, city, but the people who do vote will be very informed mm-hmm. uh, and, uh, and they'll be scrutinizing everything. So, so I mean, that's kind of how I see this going. I, I don't think you'll get some kind of 75% turnout. I don't think no. you'll get it. Uh, but I think it has the potential to, to crack 50%. I mean, especially over housing. I just think there is, like I said, just a lot of frustration and, and anger and people just wanting to see something done that a, a lot, I feel like a lot more people are tuning in uh, this year than than years previous. Time. Yeah, the, the academic, uh, not to be too boring, but the the academic literature says it's all about voter contact. Mm. And so one effect of taking a lot of money out of this election is that there'll be way less contact. Right. Is that in the last election when there was I don't know five million dollars spent, almost all of that would be on voter contact. It'd be sending door knockers out. It'd be doing phone calls. It would be texting folks and all that. So that's going to drop off. Mm, so so okay. you may actually get, you know, I don't, so I think Vision spent $3 million in the last campaign. Mm-hmm. I'd, it, I'd be surprised if they could spend half of that. Wow. Uh, and so that will probably half the contact. So, so I would expect, despite all the ferocity that's going on right now, mm-hmm. uh, you know, about probably 60% of the city won't, uh, of the eligible voters probably won't vote. Yeah. Um, but the the 40% that do will be super well informed and that's uh, probably where the candidates will put their effort. Mm -hmm. Yeah, fair enough. Um, You've openly stated that uh, you want to unite progressives in this election and there's there's you, there's Chief Ian Campbell, there's Patrick Condon, there's Shauna Sylvester, Uh, David Chen might be a little more on the centrist side, I'm still not sure. The platforms haven't come out obviously, but it sounds like quite a monumental task to to unite the progressives uh, and I'm also confused because some people like the term progressive, some people <laughs> like the term the left. Regardless, that side of the spectrum, yep. is it too crowded in this election, particularly on the mayoral side? I think what you're seeing now is not what you're going to see on the October ballot. Okay. I do think that there, there will be some narrowing. Uh, mm-hmm. We've already seen a bit of that. I mean, in January, there was so many other people that were interested in uh, in running, I know Libby Davies was really looking at it and then decided not to, and I'm very fortunate to have her endorsement uh, mm-hmm. uh, last couple of days. Uh, so I do think a bit of tire kicking is still going on. Okay. Uh, and I do think uh, I, I do think uh, there'll be kind of pivotal landmark moments. So for example, um, I know the Vancouver District Labor Council has been very trying very hard to, uh, you know, to try to, I guess, solidify the left and, and find out where they're going to 
put their uh, efforts during the election. And I um, so they've decided on council, and they're just deciding now for mayor. Mm-hmm. And I think next week they'll they'll say who they're going to support for mayor. And I do think that that will have quite an impact on on what happens on the ballot. Um, sure. You know, we'll have polling. We've had some polling out already uh, from uh, Mario Canseco at mm-hmm. a research company. And, uh, you know, I do think that as as this goes along, the the pack will spread out kind of like, a, you know, the Tour de France or something. It'll sure. Be, you know, you'll, you're all bunched up at the beginning and then it'll start to... And then, and then I think people will just see that it's not feasible to stay in the race and they yeah. might... They might decide, oh, well, I'm going to run for council instead of mayor or something like that. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I, I think the main thing to do is just to keep talking to people, uh, don't engage in, in petty politics, uh, try to really listen to, to what people's policy concerns are. Right. Uh, and and then I do think, uh, you know, media are going to start positioning folks. So I, I, mm-hmm. res- I saw a piece by Frances Bueller yesterday where she was trying to position uh you know, where people were in terms of densifying the city. Right. And, and that's the kind of information that the 40% of voters were really going to look at. Yeah, that's exactly um, right. And, uh, and uh, yeah, so I think that's it. And so what, I'm, what I've been focusing on in these eight weeks that I've been in the race is to, is to try to get the lay of the land and to, to have as many conversations with, with the folks that are actively pursuing positions, but also the, the folks that, you know, like businesses and, and unions and others who have a lot to say about how the city should work. Mm-hmm. And, um, and then after, uh, then, then the next, I guess, right up until September is going to be about, uh, trying to pull, make this, uh, you know, this cohesive progressive slate emerge. Yeah. And is that really when the election kicks in, like sort of right after the Labor Day weekend, 40, about 45 days. Well, it's weird to, to think about it that way. In a sense, in my last federal election, I worked for two and a half years. <laughs> you know, I was basically campaigning for two and a half years sure. uh, to win by 500 votes. So, yeah. so for me, uh, the campaign started the minute uh, May 10th, the minute that I jumped in. That's For me, that's the campaign. So yeah. it's, I mean, I think on Monday, it's 14 weeks to the vote, which mm-hmm. in, in federal terms is... You know, you should be super scared if you're <laughs> if you're not organized by that right. point. Uh, so, so again, the, 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 my federal experience has kind of said, but well, I'm in the race now until October 20th. Like, mm-hmm. so, so I'll be putting stuff out, uh, significant policy planks and things mm-hmm. uh, as they develop way before before that time. But okay. if you're waiting till September, it's over. <laughs> yeah, fair <laughs> enough. Fair enough. Um, as voters learn about the candidates. What, do you, what sort of questions do you think that uh, we should be asking? Yeah, I mean, there's there's a bunch of different questions. So so the folks that have strong kind of left or right preferences, they're basically going to ask who's going to win, who can win. Right. That that's yeah. one thing that they'll you know. So I guess I guess you're you're looking at the the ballot question is in some senses, um, mm-hmm. but folks are less. Uh, you know, ascribe less to a certain political view, they'll probably be asking who's going to solve my problem. Mm-hmm. And part of our job as politicians do is to identify their problems. So you do say it's housing, 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 and, and you're, you're right. Mm-hmm. But there is an opioid uh, epidemic in the mm-hmm. city, uh, which trumps for some people, for a big chunk of people, trumps everything else, mm-hmm. uh, transportation issues, um, you know, and so that's really what they're going to ask. Mm-hmm. And, and I wouldn't say it's selfish at all. I think it's proper for folks to say, I want to elect people that are going to do the things I want. Mm-hmm. And so it's up to us to identify what they want, to, f- to find out what some options are, and can you make that work uh, in your in your platform? Mm-hmm. And so, 
Yeah. Um, so if that's what voters are going to be asking, are you asking what you guys should be asking? Uh, I'm asking what voters should be asking. Yeah. yeah. What do you think is important uh, to, yeah. to ask of the candidates or to ask of the parties in terms of their platforms? And I mean, I would... When it comes to housing, like it can be quite complicated to understand mm-hmm. <laughs> zoning and rezoning and all these other rules. I almost think a good question is saying, okay, what's what's currently being done? What are you going to do differently, and why is that better? And that, and I think that's if someone, if a candidate can summarize that for me, um, you know, I, I might be more inclined to to listen to what they're saying. Yeah, I mean, I kind of lay it out in three groups. I mean, uh, you know, homelessness is increasing, mm-hmm. which is one group of folks. There's the folks that are immediately affected, of course, which is tough. But there's also people that care a lot that yeah. they say this is not how a rich city should be. Yeah. There, there's that group. There's the folks that are being chased out because the rents are too high. Mm-hmm. And uh, I'm a renter, so I understand that rents are too high. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then there's the folks that uh, want to get into the property market that can't. Uh, there's another group, though, and those are the folks that are have invested in the market. So the half the city owns their homes. Uh, I think something like 35% have mortgages. Okay. Uh, interest rates just went up again today. So there's a lot of stress on that side. And mm-hmm. there's a lot of stress on, I think, a lot of the people that vote that own properties, either outright, but most of them with mortgages, are going to ask, is this guy going to drop my property value? Right. And I really think all policies have to be, uh, you know, you kind of have to balance all those views. Mm-hmm. Uh, there there will be, uh, so I really think when you're looking at housing policies, I, I really don't think that you should be trying to put things in place that collapse property values because mm-hmm. that punishes the people that have, uh, you know, some have worked hard to uh, Yeah, to and, and there, some yeah. have, you know, some have, uh, you know, obtained properties in ways that you would say are not hard work. That's mm-hmm. kind of lucky. But others have really said, this is where I'm putting the most of my money. This is what I'm working for. This is where my family is. Mm-hmm. So you got to be careful not to. So, so that's why I think... Um, that's why I'm taking a bit of time and consulting with experts. I mean, I've been talking with, uh, being from university, I've got lots of access. So I have been talking to economists. I have been, uh, but also frontline delivery folks. Uh, so that's, that's why I'm taking time before I roll out all the details of, of a, of a platform because sure. I'm going to use the next, I would say five to six weeks to really nail down what has to be done here. Um, and then present it, uh, and when see do we what expect happens. that platform. To yeah, come I would say, I'm not, well, I'm meeting with my team next week to see, okay. you know, kind of chart out how this will be delivered. I think you'll probably get it in chunks. Okay, uh, fair enough. And then uh, with all of it out sometime in September. But uh, it's tough because half the side's the policy side and half the side's the communication side. So mm-hmm. you, have to, you have to get They go together. together. Yeah, yeah, well, but they, they often don't agree on, on what how the stuff is rolled out. So, mm-hmm. but, my, you know. Last night, for example, what I did all night is review the past couple of city budgets. So I was going mm-hmm. through all the documents. Looking, I've looked at them before, but I was reacquainting myself and looking at, you know, oh, the library only gets 4% of the city budget. Like, could we do better there? Uh, because mm-hmm. that's a free service yeah. that everybody can enjoy. And that, that is uh, for homeless folks and low-income people. That like, When I moved here, I lived in the library, basically. Really? Oh, yeah. <laughs> I mean, I was there all the time. I had no phone or television or anything. So yeah. I was super poor, and libraries are really important to me. Yeah. My sister's a librarian. So I think, is there – and people really value libraries. So, so that's what I was starting to think of, you know, What's the money that we have available? Housing is super important, but it can't all be about money. I and mean, we still mm-hmm. need uh, about housing. We need police and fire department. We need of health services. So it's really 
thinking about, well, what would my first budget look like? Mm-hmm. You know, and then what will council look like? What would they support? So, so, but I'm so enjoying it. Like it yeah. is really, uh, it's really dreaming about what your city can be Sure. and, uh, think, well, what resources do I have? You know, do, do we have to work with and, and where can we take it? Like, mm-hmm. where can we make this a place that all around the world, other people that look at cities go, wow, that city's really got it together. Like mm-hmm. they have, they're, they're all working together and they've figured it out. And I mean, then they'll say, well, I want to go live there. Yeah, <laughs> of course. That's right. They're already saying that. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. But I mean, it's, it's more than the mountains and the sea. Mm-hmm. If you took that away, what is our city? You know, I'm, I'm worried about cultural space. Mm-hmm. Uh, as, a, as a musician, you know, I think, oh, geez. I mean, it, it, you know, when I was here in the 80s and 90s, there were tons of places to play. Yeah. Less so now. Um, so when it has to be all kinds, it's not just opera and uh, symphony, which is important, but my brother plays in the punk rock band and uh, mm-hmm. has forever. And it's like, those places are kind of closing down. And That's so true, yeah. how do we keep that? Cu- so, I mean, but it is dreaming about what your city can be. And I, and I, and I hope we can get away from stressing about housing mm-hmm. and, and get to a place where people feel at least somewhat relaxed. And then we can say, oh, you know, what about our artists and what about our authors and what about our musicians mm-hmm. and, and how can we make this, uh, you know, the best the city has ever been. Sure. You know? Yeah. Cool. Well, um, how can voters learn more about you? How can they connect with you? Yeah. Uh, so I have a website, uh, kennedystewart.ca, mm-hmm. and stuff will be rolling out there. Uh, my Twitter is Kennedy Stewart, and I have Facebook, you know, very active Facebook page. Those are my three ways. Okay. Um, you know, I know Facebook leaks over to Instagram for some reason, but I can't say I'm not a, an active Instagrammer. I don't think the, the hashtag <laughs> Van Pauly community is very big on Instagram. Right. Yet. Okay. I think I, it's Twitter for sure. Yeah. Facebook a little bit, and yeah, then obviously the, if you, you have your own website as well. So. That's right. Yeah, those are the ways that you'll be getting communication. I mean, the, the thing I would say is that because they've taken a lot of money out of the elections, which is a good thing, mm-hmm. that also means you don't get, really get your luxury communication tools anymore. Right. So I think people are going to get a lot of kind of uh, automated phone calls and, and those kind of things. So mm-hmm. I just ask everybody to, <laughs> you know, to bear with the parties <laughs> as they're going through that. It, it will be annoying, but really how do, we, how do you communicate with 400,000 people on a limited budget? Yeah, right? fair enough. So no television commercials, no billboards, nothing like that. So yeah. it's uh, be good old fashioned volunteering and door knocking. So get involved that way. People hitting the pavement, I love it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. and people should <laughs> should go out. It you know, I used to think it was scary to to go door knocking until yeah. you do it a bunch of times, and then you realize like, wow. Everybody's cool. Yeah. Like it's, you know, they might be upset or whatever, but they're so happy when you get to talk to them. Yeah, uh, it makes a big difference. Yeah, it does. So I would say get involved and uh, sign up. Come on, door knocking. Cool. Come out with me. <laughs> <laughs> well, with that, Dr. Stewart, uh, I'd like to thank you for your time. And I sincerely wish you the best of luck from now until October and, of course, beyond. Thank you. Um, and I do want to say one thing, actually. Um, I, I really do want to point this out. You agreed to be on this podcast before it existed in the ether. Uh, I sent an email to your general campaign office. Um, and I, I, I was thinking, I was like, oh, you know, Kennedy Stewart, that'd be so awesome to have him on. But he's, he's pretty high profile. I don't think he'll do it. And within a few days, you called me. I was driving. 
Right. Uh, yeah. It was, I, it was an unknown number, but I still <laughs> picked it up and I was driving and and basically you were like, hey, it's it's uh, Kennedy Stewart. Uh, just read your email. Yeah, love to do it. When and where? And yep. I was so <laughs> flustered because I obviously didn't have my calendar on me. Right. And I was like, can I let you know? And uh, we agreed to a date. I actually ended up changing the time because of a personal commitment. Yeah. But you stuck to it. Yeah. And you agreed to be here without even knowing what this thing was. And I think that speaks to you as a person and, and you as a candidate. And I really hope that uh, the voters of Vancouver uh, look look closely at you and your candidacy. Well, that's very nice. Thank you very much. I really enjoyed this, and, you, and you're a fantastic host. So thanks, thanks for having me. Thank you very much, ladies and gentlemen. That was very possibly your next mayor for the city of Vancouver, Dr. Kennedy Stewart, and I'm Mo Amir, telling you that in a city where you can be anything, be colorful. This is Van Color. Peace. <laughs>